0: I'm so uh thankful that we get to meet in this way, even if it's digitally, even if it's not as, as we would like to be, getting to be here in person together. But we're thankful that we can still have time uh the preaching and teaching of God's Word and coming under uh, God's Word as a church together, and so we're thankful that we have this time. But as we begin this morning, I'm gonna to read to us from the from the harmony of the gospels. If you're not familiar with the harmony of the gospels, all it is is we've taken Uh, scholars have taken all four of the Gospels and put them chronologically together so that you see parallel passages right next to each other. And in doing so, when we do that, we see the fullness of what's happening in these different episodes that the the Gospels have recorded for us as they tell us of Jesus' life. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four uh, Gospel writers that write from eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection... And when we put those together, we get a fuller picture of what was going on. And so we're continuing this week, the second week of our series, kind of leading up to Easter, looking at just the last few moments of Jesus's life and what it is that he said and did in those last moments. And as we do, it's great encouragement to see what Jesus is doing right in the middle of that. And so this morning I'm going to read to you from Mark chapter 15. John chapter 19 and Luke chapter 23. And so hear the reading of God's word. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And after this, Job, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture i thirst and a jar full of sour wine stood there and when jesus had received the sour wine he said it is finished and then calling out with a loud voice said father into your hands i commit my spirit and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. And so let's pray, and then we're going to look at that passage together as we think about those last few moments of Jesus' life on the cross. But let's pray first. God, we pray that as we spend time in your word, that you would teach us, that you would lead us, that you would guide us, that you would illuminate our hearts and minds to understand the fullness of, of what you have for us in your word, Uh, What it reveals to us about who you are and the ways that you love us and what it is that Jesus has done for us. We pray that we would see that afresh this morning and that we'd be greatly uh, influenced and encouraged uh, by the truth of your word. Uh, We thank you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so uh, as we're meeting like this, uh, it's the third week now that we're not able to gather together. Uh, It's certainly a crazy time in in our culture, in our world. Uh, I think it's safe to say it's it's unlike anything uh, that we've seen before. Uh, To come into this time where we can't gather together in these ways, and uh, we're we're seeing news stories about hospitals being overwhelmed. Uh, We're seeing disease spread. We're seeing this virus and and what it's doing uh, to our economy. Uh, to, to people's being, uh, ability uh, of being able to work. Uh, one of those things when we start to look at it is we think about uh, the, the, the anxiety that can come from that. Uh, sometimes we're, we're anxious or fearful over the thought of possibly getting sick. Or for a lot of us, uh, a loved one getting sick. And we see these things and as they kind of flood in, there's a fear or an anxiety or frustration that can come from all of that. And so when I think about that and I see it, what is the problem? Or maybe I should say, what is the solution when we're overcome in those ways? How do we deal with that? And oftentimes what we end up doing is we fixate on the problem. And we think about the things that are going on and what could happen. And we start to let that overwhelm us. But I think the answer is that we turn and we look to who God is and what he's doing and how he's working. Who Jesus is and the way he loves us. And what he tells us, taking our eyes off the problem and fixing them on Jesus, as the old hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full into his wonderful face and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so that's exactly what I want us to do. You know, We had planned this series before all this happened uh, to lead up to Easter to help prepare our hearts for the glory of the resurrection. But I'm thankful that we're spending time fixing our eyes on Jesus and what it is he says and does in those last moments that were so chaotic, that so much was going on. And there was a lot of fear among Jesus's followers and his disciples. And so I want us to see what it is that he does in the midst of that. And so we're going to look at that passage that I just read for us this morning. And as we do, we're going to focus on just those last moments. And I want us really to start at the very end, end of what I read Anyway. Uh, of mark chapter 15 and verse 39 as it says this and when the centurion who stood facing him facing jesus as he was on the cross saw that in this way he breathed his last and he said truly this man was the son of god and i want us to think about that for just a minute i want us to start there at the end, before we even look at what Jesus says and what he did that would spark this in the centurion, that he would make this confession that surely this was the Son of God. But I want us just to think about this centurion for a minute. Maybe you know uh, about the Roman Empire or or Roman soldiers. Maybe you don't. Uh, As we come to the Bible, it's helpful to know a little bit about it because the Roman Empire was the ruling empire at the time. And the soldiers were around, and this was a big part of society and what was happening in the time that Jesus lived and spoke into. And so what we see uh, in the scriptures and, and as we know from history about the Roman Empire is there were, uh, they were very brutal in their uh, ruling over the people. That the way it was uh, structured and the way it functioned, that you had soldiers uh, divided into these groups and the way the army would work and the way they would go about their business. A Roman centurion was a professional soldier, a professional soldier that was over uh, about a hundred men himself. Uh, he was large, uh, a part of a larger group in the way that things were subdivided within the Roman military. But a centurion was important to understand that they were kind of the backbone of how this functioned. These were professionals that gave their life to this, that were in charge of a lot of men. They were in charge of disciplining and enforcing discipline among their group, among those under their command. And if you know anything about the way the Roman military functioned, it's pretty uh, scary to see. Some of the things that they did and the way that they operated was very harsh. It was very uh, exacting. If you stepped out of line, uh, death was normal in their ranks and the way that they operated, that I'm not going to spend a bunch of time thinking about the Roman military, but I do want to think about one part of what a Roman centurion would do and what they would see. I want us just to sketch a little bit of a background of this man that turns and says this confession of who Jesus is. A Roman centurion would have been part of regular crucifixions. Crucifixion was one of the ways in which the Roman Empire would put down any sort of rebellion or sedition within the Roman Empire. And so if anyone was accused or or, or brought forth with this idea that they were seeking to rebel or not have complete allegiance to the Roman Empire, they would publicly crucify them. It was how they kept peace. They use that term peace loosely here. Because the way it worked within the Roman Empire is if you stepped out of line and you weren't completely under their authority and what they said, they publicly and brutally killed you. Crucifixion was the way they would do it. They would hang you on a cross and they would nail you to it and they would make a public display to show this is what happens when you step out of line against the Roman Empire.
1: And a centurion would have
0: been a big part of this. They would be regularly doing this. In fact, we can look back in history and see different rebellions that came. In fact, Spartacus' rebellion in about 70 B.C., somewhere thereabouts, was such a huge rebellion as the empire went out and sought to put the rebellion down. History tells us that over 6,000 rebels were crucified publicly. It's hard to get our heads around that sort of brutality, that sort of public uh, display of violence. But this was normal within the Roman Empire. And so what we would have seen or what a Roman centurion would have seen is they would have been well equipped or well acquainted with suffering, well acquainted with violence, well acquainted with seeing people die at different times. And so this man that stands there next to Jesus and gazes up and sees what's happening in the way in which he dies and makes this profession of faith was not someone who was new to this. It's not someone who had not seen death up close before. In fact, it's probably someone who, who's speaking from a, a place of seeing many people die. And so here's the question I want us to consider what was so different about the way in which Jesus died that it brought him to the end of this scene, at the end of the crucifixion, to turn and say, Truly, this man was the Son of God. And so I want you just to think about what the Gospels tell us and what they say happened over those few hours as Jesus hung on the cross from early in the morning to now three in the afternoon. What had taken place and what happened? We talked about last week how from noon to three, and now we're right at the end of that, at the very end of that, that uh, time frame, that darkness came over the whole land. Creation was crying out and showing visibly what was happening to Jesus on the cross as he took on the sin of all those that would put their faith in him. And then God pours out his wrath upon that sin. We talked about that last week. And so if you want to go back and listen and think through just the implications of that, I would encourage you to do that. But as the darkness comes, the the soldier, the centurion would have certainly seen that, the supernatural display. And maybe that was part of what was going through his mind as he made this confession. Or we could even go back further to when Jesus is, is first placed on the cross, as they lead him up to crucify him. And Luke tells us this in Luke chapter 23. And there they crucify him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Now, I'm speculating here because I don't know if the centurion that makes this confession at the end was there for the whole of the crucifixion. From history, it seems like that was probably the case, and it's probably a fair assumption to make. But if, if that were true and he had heard that and he had seen Jesus being crucified between these criminals, and as they put him on the cross and he cries out in praise, For those that are crucifying, asking the Father to forgive them because they know not what they're doing. I think it's safe to see that's probably the first time he's ever seen someone being crucified where they're praying for those that are crucifying them. But if we went further and we thought about exactly what he's seeing and experiencing, and we come back to this verse here in Mark chapter 15 and verse 39, when the centurion who stood facing him, Saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. And so the immediate context seems to point us right to what he saw in those moments. In those few moments there in which Jesus, in the last moments of his life, breathes his last breath. And so what was that like? What happened? And as we just read a minute ago, it tells us that as right as it comes to the end, Jesus says, I thirst. And it tells us he says so to fulfill scripture, uh, to point us to to Psalm 22 and these messianic prophecies, our typology that points us ahead to Jesus. And he, he says this to fulfill scripture. And then it says he received sour wine. And after he received it, Jesus said, it is finished. And then he cried out, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And then it tells us, and he bowed his head. And gave up his spirit. And so the centurion standing right there. And looking up at Jesus. And seeing the picture of all that was going on. But then seeing in this moment. In the very moment that Jesus breathes his last breath. That he says it is finished. Father into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he bowed his head and he died. And I think in those moments. And that exact moment is his. His uh, as he dies on the cross, that the centurion looked up and saw something he had never seen before. What he saw was a man that was in control of what was happening. A man that knew exactly what he was doing and why he was there, and he had finished the work that he came to do, and he pronounced it as so, and then he died. I want you to think about what that would be like. Someone who had in many, many crucifixions who's seen people uh, suffering in the agony of this horrible way in which to be killed, fighting for breath, struggling. But here is Jesus who pronounces he's now done. It's finished. And then he breathes his last breath and he dies. And the centurion looks at this and suddenly makes this confession. Truly, this is the son of God. He sees in this a man that dies in a way that he's never seen before. He sees in this a man that's actually in control of the situation and what's happening in a situation that looks like that is totally out of control, totally out of his control. But for Jesus, that's not the case. And the centurion sees this. Now, certainly there's something going on here more than just that. There's a spiritual element to what's going on. Uh, As as God softens this soldier's heart to see the reality of who Jesus is and to be able to make this confession, there's certainly a spiritual element to that. And I want you just to pause and consider what a glorious picture that is for just a moment. The man who's literally uh, crucifying Jesus, that is directly uh, accountable
1: for putting him on the cross, that is there
0: as part of the death squad, That would put to death the only innocent man who's ever lived. And yet God in his grace opens his eyes to see the glory of the one that he's killing. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel that we proclaim. That in those moments that God loves so much even to those that are undeserving. Which is all of us. And he opens the man's eyes to see. And he makes this confession. And so it's a beautiful picture, the centurion, of what he's beginning to realize. That Jesus is in control. That he is the one doing this. That he is doing what God has called him to do. And he makes this confession. Now, of course, the centurion didn't know all. He didn't know the fullness of what was happening in that moment. In fact, I don't believe that any of them knew the fullness of what was happening in that moment. Not yet, anyway. But what we do know, what we can see the fullness of, that the centurion couldn't, that those on looking didn't know or see or couldn't fully comprehend. We now know. And so I want us to think about that for just a second, the fullness of what was happening in this moment as we look at this scene. And I want us to consider what was really going on. And so, yes, what was really going on is that Jesus was in control. He was in control of this situation. And when he says it is finished, and he bows his head and he gives up his spirit. He was in control of that situation. He was willingly laying his life down. No one was taking it from him, but Jesus was willingly doing so. And we've seen that all the way through the Gospels. What the centurion didn't know, but what had been seen all the way through Jesus's life, is this was always the plan for him to come and to lay his life down. And we can go back and we can trace that through the Gospels. in in john's gospel he makes this great use uh, of the the word hour it's one of those themes that often when we study the book of john or we walk through that with others or we teach them how to do that and how to then share it with others when we talk about the importance of the hour in the gospel of john and what we see when we look at that is we see that within that phrase and what it's talking about it's always pointing ahead to jesus's death and so it's an enlightening study to read through the gospel of john And to look at how that phrase of the hour is used. And what you'll find when you do that is it begins right at the beginning of John's gospel. In chapter 2, Jesus will talk about how his hour has not yet come. And right there at the beginning of his public ministry, he's already setting his sights on that he is going to lay his life down. And you can follow it all the way through, not just John's gospel, but throughout the gospels. And as Jesus goes along the way and as he preaches and teaches, he's always pointing ahead that he has come to lay his life down. And the longer his ministry goes, the more and more clear it becomes. He starts to clearly tell his followers and his disciples that this is what is going to happen. And this is why he's here. We get to Matthew chapter 16, and it says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders. And the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed on the third day, and be raised. And of course, as he began to say that, his disciples couldn't fathom it. They couldn't understand because they didn't have a category for a Messiah that would come and suffer and die in the middle of history. And so, as Jesus begins to tell them, maybe you know the story, he tells them, and Peter pulls him aside and says, That'll never be. He rebukes Jesus. And he said, That's not going to happen. I'm not going to let that happen. Typical Peter in his impetuousness pulls them aside and tells them. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. This is what I've come for. And he'll continue to say this over and over. Despite their bewilderment of what he's talking about, he will continue to tell them. In Luke chapter 9, it says he set his face towards Jerusalem. And in the context, what it talks about and what it's pointing us to is that Jesus has a laser focus on what he has come to do and why he is there and how he's going to go to Jerusalem and lay his life down. Or as you get closer to the hour, to the moment, you'll see in John's gospel, it changes from the hour is not yet here to the hour is near to the hour is now come. And he'll start to say it in these ways and it'll become clearer and clearer. And we get to the point of the night before Jesus died, those last 24 hours. And in John 14 or 13 through 17, in the upper room discourse, he's talking about going away and preparing a place. And this is what I'm going to do. And you're going to be sorrowful and it's going to be sadness. And he's trying to prepare them as he's telling them over and over that this is what's going to happen. And it's always the case in Jesus's ministry that he's pointing them to this truth. We also see as, as they leave the upper room. Jesus teaches them in those last hours that you see in John 13 through 17. But then they get up and they leave the room. And they go out. And as they go out into the Garden of Gethsemane, and they begin to pray. They rise and they get up and Judas comes in to betray Jesus. And he has with them a crowd of people. He says they're carrying swords and clubs with the religious leaders. And they come in to arrest Jesus. And as they do... They surround him and they come up to Jesus and they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And there's this incredible scene there. As they ask, Jesus says, I am he. And as he says it, the power in which that goes out in his words of what he says, knocks them back on their heels and they fall to the ground. And it becomes so clear that Jesus is the one that's in control. Despite them coming to arrest him, despite the persecution that's coming, despite the inevitable death as he's going to lay his life down, he is the one that's in control. They get back up off the ground and they say, we're looking for Jesus. And he says, I told you, it's me. Let these others go. And so as they come to arrest him, Peter, like normal, (laughs) jumps ahead, freaks out, takes out a sword, starts swinging it. If you know this story. And as he does, it seems like disarray around Jesus, like there's about to be a giant rebellion and a fight. And Jesus says, stop. No more. And he turns and he tells Peter to put the sword back into his place. And then he says, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And then he says this. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once Send me more than 12 legions of angels. But how then should the scriptures be filled that it must be said? And John tells us or adds that he says, shall I not drink from the cup that the father has given me? And in the midst of this chaos in which the, his disciples are ready to fight, Jesus says, no. This is what all of scripture has been about. This has always been the plan. I've come to lay my life down. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? He talked about the cup last week the cup of God's wrath poured out on the sin of all those that would put their faith in Jesus as he takes those sins upon himself and he says this has always been the plan I'm going to do this I'm going to go in this way and lay my life down and so over and over throughout Jesus' ministry he's telling us he's showing us he's teaching those around them even though they can't fully understand or even hear it at the moment. But this has always been the plan that he's going to lay his life down. There's one more episode there in all of that as it comes together. After Jesus is arrested in the garden, they take him off. And he goes before the, the religious leaders and then they send him over to Pilate. We have for us in the Gospels these interactions with Pilate, the governor of Judea. The one that is over the Roman province. He is the uh, head of, of the area. He is the one that has the power to put Jesus to death or to let him go. And he begins to question Jesus. And Jesus tells him, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate's amazed. He can't get his head around this guy that he's talking to. How is he so calm and with these things that he's saying? And he begins to question him and Jesus just doesn't answer. He's silent. And Pilate cannot understand why. Pilate, who has sentenced many, many people to death, who's watched people grovel before him and beg and plead, and Jesus does none of that. And finally, Pilate says to Jesus, You will not speak to me. Do you know the authority I have to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus turns to Pilate and says, You have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And it says right after that that Pilate sought to release him. He sought to let him go. And I think when we read between the lines and we look at the context that Pilate was afraid He was worried. And what he saw is what the centurion saw. Here is a man that is in control of this situation. This is not like anyone that we've ever seen before. It's not like any other crucifixion that they had ever carried through. Jesus stands in the middle. In control. This was always the plan. Willingly laying his life down. But the second thing I want us to consider is why that's the case. Why Jesus was so willing to lay his life down. Why he was so set on this is what's going to happen and the way it's going to happen. Why he has this laser sharp focus that he has come to lay his life down. And it actually tells us in the passage that we read this morning. Although there, there's some, some digging we've got to do to see it fully. But in Mark chapter 15 in verse 38 it says this. That right after Jesus calls out, it is finished. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And he bows his head and he breathes his last breath. And then verse 38 says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. If you know the scriptures, if you know what the Bible teaches, you know what it's referring to. The temple where the nation would come together, where God had chosen to dwell among his people, in the inner part of the temple was the most holy place and then the holy of holies so the holy place and the holy of holies and in that back section called the holy of holies there was a curtain that separated it from the, the outer part the holy area and then the outer part outside of that but in that inner area no one could enter except once a year the priest would go in to make sacrifices on behalf of the people And what God had done in setting up the temple that way is he was showing his people clearly the separation that comes between a holy, perfect God and a sinful, broken people. But yet, in God's grace and mercy, he wanted to be near his people. And so he had made a way in this system of the temple and the sacrificial system that went with it. You couldn't enter in because of the sin, because we as sinful people cannot walk, right into the presence of holy and perfect and glorious God. And so each year on the Day of Atonement, that year, that day alone, the priest would go in and make sacrifices on behalf of the people. But it was the only time anyone could come in. And it was to to profess, to show, that we have a sinful, as a sinful people cannot have this perfect communion that we were created for with God because of our sin. Our rebellion, going against the things that God has told us in the world that He created, and so when it tells us in Mark chapter fifteen that as Jesus says it is finished, and He breathes His last breath, and the temple is, the curtain is torn in two that separates the very presence of God, that it was no more, and it was because of what Jesus had done, it was because He willingly accepted His role to go and take the cup. That the father has for him. To take on the sin of all those that would put their faith in him. As God pours out his wrath on that sin. That we could be made righteous because of what Jesus has done for us. And we can now have perfect communion with our heavenly father. In which we were created to have. And Jesus knew that the only way that this could be done. The only way that God could be perfectly Uh, merciful and loving and gracious, but at the same time, perfect justice, was for him to come and to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so his entirety of his ministry was always looking to coming to be that final and perfect sacrifice, to take away the separation, to bring us into his presence by what Jesus does for us. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we could become the righteousness of God in him. And Jesus does that. And he has this focus the whole way through his ministry because he knows he is the only one. The only one as fully God and fully man who comes and lives the life that we haven't lived and dies the death that we deserve. But then can bear the perfect righteous anger of God that is his wrath. For all sin and withstand under that is the perfect sacrifice. Jesus is the only one that can do it. It's the only way that God and all His attributes are held perfectly together, that He is both just and justifier of all those that would come to faith in Jesus, and it's all Him. And Jesus knew this. It's why He says it is finished. It's done. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And why the veil was torn in two, because now God's glory can go and dwell within you and and, uh, with you at all times because of what Jesus has done. And so what we see there right at the heart of this is that Jesus finishes that work. Why it had to be this way. Why Jesus was always pointing forward to his death. And so the last part I want us to consider is why this is so important. Why this is so important for us right now, today. You know, it started this morning with how we struggle with uncertainty. We can struggle with fear and anxiety. We can look at the world and the way it is, and we can look at sickness and virus. We can look at our economy. We can look at uh, being uh, anxious over jobs, and we can be overwhelmed by those things. But when we turn and we look at Jesus in the midst of those moments when everything seems to be out of control, there he stands. With a laser sharp focus. Willing to lay his life down. In the face uh, of taking on the wrath for the sin of the world. In the face uh, uh, of laying down his life that's cosmic in scope. That if he sees that. That he sees what God is doing. And he goes straight through it. And so here's what I want you to think about. What it means for us. In Hebrews chapter 5, it talks about Jesus being uh, learning, being made perfect in his suffering. And it's a perplexing thing to think about. How can the God of the universe that knows all things, that is all-knowing and all-powerful, how can he learn? How can he be made perfect in his suffering? And I think what the scripture is talking about is what it is telling us. Is that in those moments that Jesus went from being God of the universe that knows all things to actually experiencing the God who is near, that knows exactly what we go through because He has walked through it. Because He has gone through the most difficult time ever that anyone would face. The greatest temptation, the greatest pull to be fearful and anxious And he fixes his eyes on what he came to do for the joy that's set before him, and he finishes it. And he does it. And what that means is that when we walk through suffering,
1: when we walk through being fearful,
0: when we walk through things in our life that we can't get our our hands around and we're not sure how this is going to go, we have a God that knows every single thing that you're going through. There's not a single part of it that he doesn't know. There's not a single thing that you're dealing with that he has not gone through it and walked through it that he knows. And so wherever you are and whatever you're dealing with, whatever things that you're struggling with, God understands and he is never indifferent to your suffering because he knows it intimately. But that's not all. Not only does he know it intimately but what we celebrate on Easter, what we celebrate every week as we gather together in this church is that Jesus has defeated sin and death and nothing can come between him and those that he loves. There's nothing that will ultimately frustrate his purposes. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in all things because of what he's done and he's proven it on the cross. And so, dear friends, as we look at the world around us and what's happening and we try to get a handle on it, please, please remember this. Take heart because God loves you and he knows what you're going through. He has proven it. And not only does he know what you are going through, but he has defeated sin and death. And there is nothing that will ultimately frustrate his purposes Let's pray. God, we thank you for the glory of the good news of the gospel. We thank you that in times that are uncertain, that we can fix our eyes on you and we can see what you've done for us. Uh, The glorious picture of the way that you love us. Your focus of willing to, to go and lay down your life for us and do what we can never do for ourselves. and We can just simply say thank you. I pray that you would expand our vision of the glorious good news of who you are and what you've done. That it would grow to be so great that it would dwarf anything that seeks to rob our joy or our security. We thank you and we pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.